Hello, and welcome back to the Economic Review. Today, we have with us an extremely special featured guest, Dr. Brian Lee Crowley. He's the founder and managing director of the Ottawa-based McDonnell-Laurier Institute, which is Canada's only truly national public policy think tank. He holds a doctorate in political, in political economy from the London School of Economics and is a four-time winner of the prestigious Sir Anthony Fisher Award. It is truly my pleasure to welcome Dr. Crowley to the show. Howdy, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and the McDonald Laurier Institute. Sure. Well, uh, look, uh, if, if your audience is primarily uh, uh, American, um, you know, Americans are very used to uh, 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 an incredible universe of think tanks. There's something like 400 in the United States and in Washington in particular, uh, there's many, many think tanks uh, concerned with every issue that falls under the jurisdiction of, uh, of Washington. So you've got Heritage and Cato and AEI and Woodrow Wilson and Brookings and so on. Now, I, I went to Ottawa at the invitation of the federal government uh, to be what's called the Clifford Clark Visiting Economist, which is the top economic advisory position in the, in the federal department of finance, which is our equivalent of the American Treasury. And when I was there, I realized that there was this incredible hole in our democratic infrastructure in that we didn't have a national think tank like that in Ottawa, a national think tank talking to the national uh, decision makers and the national media and the national electorate about national issues. I thought this was a real problem. Uh, and so I decided to try and fill that gap in our democratic infrastructure uh, by starting the McDonald-Laurie Institute. Um, we're about 11 years old now. And um, our focus is everything that falls under the jurisdiction of our federal government in Ottawa. So uh, that would include things like foreign affairs, national defense, national security, indigenous affairs, uh, national economic management, um, federal provincial relations, and a whole series of other things. All right. So as I understand it, the McDonald Laurier Institute is nonpartisan, but with regards to economics, is there a certain school of economic thought that you would usually find yourself most closely aligned with? Yes, I, you're absolutely right that we're nonpartisan. And uh, I, I referred to, um, uh, you know, the think tank world in Washington. And I, I have to say that I think that the think tank world in Washington is disfigured by the fact that so many of the think tanks have partisan commitments. We at the McDonald-Laurie Institute, we don't care about the political parties. It's just not interesting to us. Um, from, but to respond directly to your question, um, if there's a, 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 an economic way of thinking that appeals more to me, let's say, and by the, by the way, just because I'm the managing director doesn't mean that um, I determine everything that the, the Institute says and does. My own orientation is to the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, in an earlier lifetime, I was a Hayek scholar. So Friedrich Hayek was somebody that I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about. Um, and I've also been quite deeply influenced by public choice economics, um, Buchanan and Tulloch, uh, and um, uh, so I, I would say those are the, the, the two principal influences on my own economic thinking. All right. So the Austrian economic school of thought, um, as, as I understand it, I mean, I'm 
I've read the works of Hayek and um, Ludwig von Mises. Also, I, I think that's quite similar to the Chicago School of Economics with Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell. Um, that's all about free market and free enterprise. So I think that that gives me um, quite a good understanding of where where your views would tend to lie um, in the issues. So moving on, I'd like to start off today by asking you about the national debt. So as I'm sure you've heard, the last few months have seen heated debate about the national debt and its role in the economy, especially as governments across the world spend more and more borrowed money on pandemic relief. Both Canada and the United States now have a national debt to GDP ratio of well above 100%, a figure which has increased exponentially over the past few decades. Dr. Crowley, I'd like to get your take on the debate surrounding the extremely high rate at which national debt is increasing for countries around the world and whether or not we have anything to be worried about. Well, in fact, Canada has been through this before. And, um, you know, the, you may know that uh, in the 1990s, uh, the, the debt in Canada reached uh, the combined federal and provincial uh, uh, public debt reached uh, well over 100% of GDP. Uh, and um, uh, this caused tremendous problems for the uh, Canadian economy. We, uh, we reached a point where literally... Um, uh, 30% of uh, everything that was coming into the coffers in uh, Ottawa to pay for public services was going out the door to pay interest on the national debt. Now, the reason that uh, uh, we haven't quite got to that kind of uh, problem uh, yet in the current circumstances, because uh, central banks around the world are trying desperately to keep interest rates low. And um, as long as they keep interest rates, in my view, artificially low, uh, as long as they keep uh, uh, stimulating uh, by uh, increasing the money supply, um, we can stave off the consequences of high levels of public debt for a little while. But um, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, unless governments are willing to inflate away uh, debt, um, this is, this is money that has to be repaid eventually, and uh, that um, tends to get governments caught in a vice where, uh, you know, the public is expecting ever higher levels of public service, uh, but revenues can't uh, keep up and there's limits to how much uh, you can borrow. Um, Ottawa in the 1990s uh, hit those limits, uh, and as a result, um, Canada went through a process whereby we had the largest fall in the level of public spending as a percentage of GDP of any Western economy in the post-war period. And that was extremely painful. Uh, um, now, this was done with tremendous public support because people understood and agreed that we, we simply couldn't allow a situation in which you know, every time money went to Ottawa, you know, a huge slice of it was taken off the top to pay for the interest on the money that we'd already borrowed to provide public services. And so, you know, we we triggered a, a process whereby for, for a period of about uh, five years, the number one public policy priority was to bring the budget back into balance. We did that. Uh, and um, it was... Um, 
an extremely successful and indeed politically popular thing to do for reasons that we could talk about if you like. Uh, But there is no doubt in my mind that the experience that Canada went through in the 1990s will eventually be the experience of um, uh, all the countries uh, so blithely racking up public debt today. Well, many of those in favor of raising the debt ceiling and calling for more borrowed spending are proponents of modern monetary theory, which posits that monetarily independent countries like the United States and Canada are not constrained by the amount of money that they bring in through taxes or other revenues in determining their budgets and don't have to worry about a balanced budget. Dr. Carley, could you um, explain your understanding of modern monetary theory with regards to its validity and the potential upsides or downsides? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think this is one of these beautiful theories, which is just not borne out in practice. Uh, again, um, I, I, I don't have to get into a theoretical discussion about it. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, in the 1990s, when Canada met exactly this kind of circumstance, uh, markets were beginning to say, mm, it's, it's risky to lend money to Canada. Uh, and um, the consequence was a falling value in our exchange rate uh, and um, uh, a... A, an inability of the private sector to borrow because government was crowding out the ability of the market to uh, supply borrowed money. Um, if modern monetary theory applies today, it should have applied in the 1990s. Uh, but I got to tell you that uh, I see no evidence uh, from based on Canada's experience uh, from those decades ago that um, the idea that because we run an independent monetary policy, we are some, in some sense insulated from the consequences of our, irrespect- our irresponsible uh, fiscal behavior is, is just whistling in the dark. Yeah, and, and I definitely, definitely agree with you there um, that countries all over the world, so I mean, even though a country like Greece a couple of years ago, it's it's not monetarily independent, but we, we saw the same effects of the exponentially increasing national debt. So, I mean, like you said, it becomes a very risky investment for foreign investors. Their credit rating falls, the interest rates skyrocket, the government um, tries to borrow more and more. And all of a sudden you have massive crowding out, extremely high interest rates and, and the whole the whole system collapses. Um, so, uh, Definitely, that's 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 a threat that I see. But also, um, the other side of this—that's that's very interesting. The point that you brought up about um, Canada in the 1990s, where the public actually supported um, a, a, re- a reduction in spending to balance the budget, because usually um, the reason that our national debt tends to get so high um, is because of all these public programs that um, you know we tend to see around every election cycle, where um, especially in the United States, um, like we're seeing right now with um, the Build Back Better agenda and a whole bunch of other programs um, where a new politician will come in and try and win an election by proposing, you know, two, three, four trillion dollar um, spending bills 
try and get those passed um, entirely on borrowed money. You know, um, the public is happy. You can't see the impacts of the national debt. Um, you know, it's just it's just a number somewhere. It doesn't really impact you until it all comes crashing down. So, um, do you see um, do you see the sort of Canadian um, solution to that, which is trying to get the public on board as the only way to balance the budget, or do you think that we're too our, our national debt is already too high for that sort of solution to work again? Well, no, I, I, I actually think that the Canadian experience is of uh, universal applicability. You know, what, what we learned in Canada was that, first of all, uh, um, it's very easy to open the spending taps. Uh, you know, everybody wants, if there's free money floating around, free money in the sense of borrowed, so, it, you know, it hasn't come through taxation out of your pocket. Uh, if there's free money, everybody wants their share of it. Uh, and so once you start saying yes, in principle, we're, we're willing, uh, we're open to the idea of borrowing money to spend on public services today, that we don't need to pay our own way. Uh, we can simply borrow against the future. Uh, uh, but while it's very easy to turn the spending taps off, it's ex uh, turn them on, it's extremely hard to turn them off, uh, precisely because um, every kind of public spending uh, attracts an accretion of special interests. Uh, these are people who become attached to and dependent on uh, the public spending programs that are created, and uh, they are very vocal in the defense of that spending. Now, what we learned in Canada was that the only way to uh, deal with that is to say uh, no one will be singled out. We, we have a national problem here. Everybody must contribute to the solution. If we recognize that there is a national problem and everyone must contribute to the solution, then there has to be a fair way of apportioning the costs of fixing the problem. And that's exactly where um, uh, the Canadian experience, I think, was, was so instructive. Uh, the, there, there was a great effort on the part of the entire political class, all the political parties. We had, we had provincial and federal governments representing the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, the New Democratic Party, which is our Social Democratic Party, all of whom were wrestling with the same problem and all of whom uh, you know, were willing to make the case to their voters that um, the status quo was unsustainable. And, and once you had a political consensus like that, it was possible then to create uh, 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 an independent kind of arm's length um, uh, series of tests, which we could apply to all public spending without fear or favor, whether there was no public spending that was off limits. Uh, and we said, okay, what we, what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves about every kind of public spending. Is this something that's achieving an important public purpose? If it's not, get rid of it. If it's achieving an important public purpose, is this the only way that we can uh, you know, achieve that purpose? Is there some other way we can do it that's less expensive? If there is, we're going to do it the less expensive way. And we just went through this series of tests <clears throat> for every kind of public spending. And the public looked at these tests and said, okay, those seem like fair, reasonable tests. And uh, if spending that I've come to uh, rely on uh, doesn't pass those tests, I, I accept that in, in the national interest, 
uh, this spending that I enjoy, that I've uh, come to uh, rely on, uh, is going to have to be reduced or eliminated. <coughs> and this, um, uh, this actually created a circumstance in which, unlike what usually happens, which is politicians say, oh, spending's out of control, so I'm going to cut program A, B, and C. Well, the people in programs A, B, and C say, well, why me and not the people who are benefiting from D, E, and F? Uh, I, when we said every program is going to be subject to these searching tests, no exceptions, then what happened when um, uh, you know people who were enjoying a particular kind of program said, well, I don't want my program to be cut. Other people who had agreed to see their government spending cut said, wait a minute, why should you be exempt? And so we actually went from a, a, a negative cycle in which any attempt to cut any program was immediately blocked by the established interests. We, we, we turned it around so that um, you know, the people who were paying the price to fix this problem themselves spoke up when people said, I don't want to be cut. They said, tough. We were cut. We accepted it. You should too. And this created um, a, a, an atmosphere for policymakers, which uh, made it possible for us to fix the spending problem, which we never could have done if it had been a single political party taking on the other political parties. Uh, and if we'd done it uh, saying, well, we're going to pick a few programs and cut them and leave everything else in place. Um, it was only by saying this is a comprehensive national problem and only if everybody contributes to the solution that we were uh, able to make some real serious and fast progress. All right. Um, perfect. Um, so my next question for you is regarding the debate surrounding healthcare. So the Canadian healthcare system is single payer and everyone is, everyone is covered and it's publicly funded through taxes. Um, many Americans advocate for a Canadian-style healthcare system, although there is much debate on the difference in quality of care and wait times. Dr. Crowley, from an economic point of view, would you view a Canadian-style healthcare system as ideal, an American-style one, or do you think that some entirely different system altogether would be optimal? Well, I, I got to tell you that I, I think healthcare is one of these things where there are no good solutions, they're only bad solutions. Every solution has its characteristic uh, disadvantages. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not somebody who says, you know, the Canadian system is terrible and uh, we must get rid of it immediately. Uh, but I'm also not somebody who thinks that it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, the queuing is a real serious problem in the Canadian healthcare system. Uh, um, every time governments uh, want to cut spending in uh, healthcare because it's uh, now uh, accounting for basically one half of all spending by our provincial governments, and our provincial governments are very, very large. Um, so it's crowding out every other kind of spending, because provinces are responsible for education, they're responsible for infrastructure, they're responsible for a whole series of things. Uh, and this insatiable appetite of the public healthcare system in Canada for cash, uh, and the unwillingness of the politicians to 
countenance real serious reform of the healthcare system uh, means that um, you know the, uh, the 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 system is great if you get sick and get into the system. The you know the care that you get is pretty good, but you have to wait in some cases. Uh, many months or even years uh, in order to get access to um, the services that you need. Um, I, I happen to know that uh, in my city here in Ottawa, uh, if you want to see a dermatologist, it's a two-year wait. Uh, if you want to get an MRI, it's a six-month wait. Uh, and these are Typical. If you want to uh, want to get a hip replacement or a knee replacement in Saskatchewan, I think it's a two-year wait, or it was relatively recently. Um, these are not small things. Uh, the The system, of course, puts no weight on, takes no account of, doesn't attach any importance to the pain and suffering of people who are waiting for the system to do what it's supposed to do. When you get into the system, you get looked after reasonably well. Uh, but because um, you know Canadians are not willing to bear the the load of taxation that would be necessary in order to provide every service immediately upon um, uh, people needing it, the way that the system handles the burden of um, you know the infinite need of Canadians for healthcare services. Uh, put together with uh, a constrained supply, the way that any system is going to deal with that is through wait times. Um, you know, in the United States, um, uh, you don't have the wait time problem, but you have a different kind of access problem. Um, problem that a number of people can't afford um, health care. And so uh, their wait is permanent. Uh, you know, Canadians don't find that a very attractive alternative, uh, but um, uh, I, I would not hold Canada's system up as an example for the rest of the world. And indeed, the rest of the world doesn't regard Canada's system as an example because uh, many people come to, from other countries to study Canada's system, but none of them ever go away and recommend its adoption in their own country. Uh, uh, so, um, Canada has solved one problem, which is, uh, you know, we, we are determined that no one should fail to get access to care because of an inability to pay. Uh, but we have created a different problem as a consequence, which is that even if you can pay, you're not allowed to opt out of the system uh, for by and large. Uh, and so you may wait for months or years to get a, a, a healthcare service, which um, uh, would relieve your pain and suffering. And often these uh, medical conditions deteriorate over time, as we know. Uh, and um, uh, so the pain and suffering that Canadians undergo as a result of uh, having the kind of system that we do uh, is a factor that's not taken account of uh, or measured successfully. Uh, and I think it's, um, it's a great failing of the Canadian system. We don't want to adopt the American system, but that doesn't make the Canadian system the, the best thing in the world. Yeah. And, and what I see with your, your point as well um, is, Healthcare systems all around the world, 
that are, um, you know, either single payer or socialized, like the, the government is hiring the doctors and the healthcare professionals, like in the UK with the NHS, um, everywhere in the world where, you know, um, everyone is covered and it's publicly funded through taxes, usually in an in, in, in economic market for a, a normal and any good, um, if demand um, exceeds the, the quantity demanded exceeds the quantity supplied, um, the price would just go up. But in this case, they, they can't increase the prices um, for, for the consumers of the healthcare. Um, so essentially what ends up happening, you just got to wait until the, the, the supply is there. So it ends up pushing wait times forward. So you have that in Canada and the UK and everywhere else pretty much that provides um, this sort of healthcare. And in other parts of the world, you have um, probably higher prices, but then um, quality healthcare. And then when you do have those two factors together, um, you don't have universal coverage. So I think with healthcare, the three factors, there's universality, there's affordability, and then there's quality. It's it's incredibly difficult to, to get all three of those things. Um, so I wanted to ask you if there was any any country in the world um, any any healthcare system that you've seen um, that that probably um, would would be a solution to to fixing these sorts of problems, or that would come as close as possible to achieving all all three of those qualities of healthcare. Well, you know, <clears throat> I don't uh, I don't think there's a perfect system anywhere. Uh, I, I'm a big um, uh, uh, admirer of uh, what they've been able to do uh, in a number of countries in continental Europe where they have where healthcare is run as a social insurance system uh, so that um, government uh, is not generally speaking the provider of healthcare services that's these uh, social insurance funds and there's always several funds in any particular country so you have a choice amongst providers and, um, you know, anybody who knows anything about uh, Hayek and Austrian economics and so on will know that, um, you know, we're big believers in uh, we're big believers in competition, that competition is a discovery procedure, the competition, you know, different people uh, uh, struggling to find the most effective way and the most the, the least expensive way of providing different services will drive innovation, uh, which is in the service of uh, consumers. And, um, you know, our system in Canada, which is uh, uh, essentially a regulated monopoly supplier of healthcare, um, uh, has completely eliminated this um, competitive element, which I think is so essential to discovering what works in the provision of healthcare, just like it, it helps us to discover what works in, you know, the provision of uh, social media platforms and automobiles and restaurants and everything else. Uh, uh, so, uh, um, you know, I, I, I like the idea of um, uh, government as um, a, a regulator of the healthcare system, but unlike in Canada, where you're both the governments are both the regulator and the provider of healthcare services, I think that puts governments in Canada in a conflict of interest because they're regulating themselves. And any regulator who regulates themselves will regulate themselves in their own interests and not in the interests of consumers, which defeats the whole purpose of having a regulator. Uh, so, uh, you know, in Europe, they've, I think, quite intelligently separated this role of uh, regulator of uh, the healthcare system 
uh, from the provision. You have competing providers and uh, um, uh, in Sweden, for example, uh, you're, you're, you're able to choose, uh, you know, every hospital uh, posts uh, information about wait times and so on. So, you know, if you, uh, uh, if you need to get a hip replacement and your local hospital says it's going to take you 12 weeks uh, to get it, but you can find a hospital, uh, you know, 50 kilometers away, uh, that'll do it in four weeks. Uh, great. And in, um, in Europe, uh, in the EU, um, they now have, uh, as a result of, I think, a decision of the European Court of Justice, a situation in which uh, if a national healthcare system cannot provide a service, that European citizens are entitled to go to another country in the European Union that can provide that service and get it paid for by their, uh, uh, by their home government's um, health care and health insurance. So um, this, again, introduces an element of uh, choice and competition within the healthcare system, which serves the interests of consumers. Um, we have that to a, a limited extent within Canada, precisely because we're on the border with the United States. You know, 80% of our population is within a, like an hour's drive of uh, the United States. And so if our healthcare system doesn't provide the services that we want, uh, we can opt out simply by driving across the border and paying cash. Um, and that's uh, actually a very important safety valve for the Canadian healthcare system. Um, what we need to do in Canada is to find a way to break that nexus between the regulator, the you know the government that uh, oversees the quality of healthcare and the provision. There's absolutely no reason why the principle that no one should who needs healthcare should do without it because of uh, an inability to pay. There's nothing about that principle that requires government to supply the healthcare services, and that's that's where we've really gone down a, a wrong path. Uh, I think it's possible to. Um, to keep that principle that no one should be without health care because of an inability to pay, but to combine that with uh, um, a system that allows competing providers that have to meet, uh, you know, established minimum standards of care uh, and um, uh, allow the efficiencies of that competitive provision to um, keep downward pressure on costs. The, 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 the problem is that there is no such downward pressure on costs at the moment, except the limits of uh, governments to borrow or to raise taxes. And um, um, uh, I think, I think uh, European countries, as I've described, show a better path forward. All right, Dr. Crowley, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, once again, I'd like to thank you so much for being on the show with us. Um, thank you, everyone, so much for listening to the Economic Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.